Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome to this episode of When Football Was Football. We hope that you enjoy your regular excursions with us back to the early days of football. But don't forget that the Sports History Network now includes over 20 podcasts related to sports history. We invite you to sample some of these excellent programs at your convenience. But for today, we're going to cover a couple of scandals that rocked the early NFL. But then we'll focus on how one individual overcame a big hit to his reputation due to a scandal to become one of the most famous athletes in the country. And along the way, he also served as one of the most effective and elusive spies for the United States during World War II. But first, there's a guy from Green Bay that is so beloved that the Packers Stadium is named after him. You guessed it, Curly Lambeau. But did you know that in his eagerness to make an impact on the NFL during the first year of the Packers in 1921, he ignored one of the cornerstone rules of the league, and as a result, the Packers were booted out of the circuit in January of 1922. Here's what happened. In late 1921, Lambeau scheduled back-to-back games in Chicago against the Cardinals and the Bears. On November 20th, the Packers tied the Cardinals 0-0, but a week later dropped a 20-0 decision to the Chicago Staley's, who are now, of course, the Chicago Bears. The results of both games were impressive, since the Packers at the time were having difficulty not only securing players, but also in arranging for practice time. The team relied on players from around the Midwest who usually gathered on weekends to practice before the game, wherever that contest was scheduled. Lambeau pulled in as many players as necessary to fill out his game day roster. So when the Packers played Racine on December 4, 1921 in Milwaukee, the Green Bay Press-Gazette reported that the battle would be for the state professional title, and that Betting on the game is brisk. Hank Gillo of Racine booted a 40-yard field goal in the fourth quarter to even the contest, which ended in a 3-3 tie. But in the post-game coverage, the Racine Journal-Times reported that, in quotes, Green Bay had several Notre Dame men from this year's lineup with her. They were Fred Larson at center, Buck Shaw at left guard, and Hunk Anderson at left tackle. With the exception of the three Notre Dame stars, the lineups were the same as published previously." Later, the Green Bay Press-Gazette noted that at the upcoming league meeting in Canton, Ohio on January 28, 1922, the alleged violations of the eligibility rules concerning the use of college players under assumed names by teams in the league will be investigated by the board of directors. Chicago sports writers have charged that the Green Bay Packers made use of Notre Dame players during the past season. 
Indeed, the Packers were ousted from the league at that meeting for using college players who still had eligibility remaining. But never fear, Green Bay fans, the banishment did not last long. The Green Bay team that was kicked out in January of 1922 was owned by Emmett Clare of Chicago, said the Press Gazette. Later in 1922, a new Packers franchise, headed by Curly Lambeau himself, was admitted to the league. No one seemed to notice that the same guy who brought in the college players to play in 1921 was the same person bringing a new franchise to Green Bay in 1922. The league was serious about not rating a college team for talent and hoped to avoid any further negative publicity on the subject. This was all well and good until 1925 when Bears owner George Hallis signed Red Grange of the University of Illinois to a contract as soon as Grange played his last game for Illinois in November of 1925. In his autobiography, Hallis admitted, even so with our reworded ban on using collegians remained vague. An ingenious manager could find loopholes in it and I did so in 1925 to the profit of the Bears and, I believe, to professional football. The problem was that although Red Grange had completed his eligibility, he was still a college student whose class had not yet graduated. Hallis interpreted the meaning of the rule to indicate that a player could be signed once his eligibility was complete, not when his class graduated. This initiated another firestorm between the colleges and the dastardly pros, who apparently would stop at nothing in order to scoop up dollars at the expense of the baffled collegiate players. Not surprisingly, little effort was made to apologize for this transgression once it became apparent that Grange was not only a money-making machine for the Bears and the pros, but also the one person likely responsible pushing pro football and the National Football League into the national limelight. Our final scandal also involves the familiar characters of Curly Lambeau, Notre Dame, and George Hallis, and takes place in 1930. Notre Dame was on a roll in 1930, crushing opponents almost weekly en route to an undefeated 10-0 season and a second straight national championship in what would be Newt Rockney's final season. Among the highlights was the closest game of the year, a 7-6 decision over Army before over 110,000 people at Soldier Field in Chicago. This was followed a week later with a season-ending 27-0 blanking of Southern Cal in Los Angeles in front of 74,000 fans. But this is where our scandal comes in. Midway through the season, it was rumored that Notre Dame All-American fullback Joe Savaldi was married, which was considered a strict infringement of the student rules at the Catholic University. Savaldi denied it, but he was soon dismissed from the school for violating a university rule regarding secret marriages. Apparently, once Savaldi was no longer a member of the Notre Dame football team, Curly Lambeau quickly signed him. But after receiving immediate criticism for this activity, especially from George Hallis, Lambeau dropped the Savaldi agreement. At this point, we'll let George Hallis of the Chicago Bears tell his side of the story. Hallis wrote, Halfway through the 1930 season, Notre Dame expelled one of its more colorful players, jumping Joe Savaldi for offending a Notre Dame rule against marriage. 
The expulsion became a popular subject of discussion for press, radio, and the public. I offered him a place on the Bears. He accepted quickly. I was well aware of the very solid rule the league had made, with my help, against teams signing players before their class was graduated. But I told myself and anyone who asked that Jumping Joe was a special case. I was not taking him out of school. Notre Dame had put him out. He was no longer a collegian by action of the college officials. Immediately, Hellas added Savoldi to the Bears lineup, which was baffling after the criticism he leveled at Lambeau for doing the same thing. Joe participated in his first Bears practice on Monday, November 24th, joining Red Grange and Bronco Nagurski in the backfield. When asked his opinion about the pros, Savoldi stated, It's a lot different in some ways and no different in others. However, I can plainly see that I mixed in with a bunch of smart players. They know all the tricks of the game, and I've got the idea already that I'm in a tougher field. In his first game with the Bears, Sabaldi scored the only touchdown of the day and a 6-0 win over the Cardinals. But Hallis was about to be called before the league president, Joe Carr, to discuss the signing of Sabaldi. Hallis said, Before long, Mr. Carr told me I was guilty of offending the league rule. I put my case forward. He said the expulsion did not change the rules. The rules said a player could not be signed until his class was graduated. He agreed the rule did not allow for the possibility of expulsion, and because of that, he would not impose a fine, although he would declare me guilty. Well, I said in that case, you must find me, and he did. I had to pay $1,000. Perhaps Savoldi was worth it. Savaldi played the final three games of the 1930 season with the Bears, but then left pro football to pursue a more lucrative endeavor, pro wrestling. He continued in the ring from 1932 through 1950, enjoying rich paychecks and fan adulation. Savaldi was actually born in Italy as Giuseppe Antonio Savaldi on March 5, 1908. Because of his linguistic skills, he was fluent in several Italian dialects. Savaldi was invited by the government in 1942 to become part of an espionage unit for the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. Working undercover with the code name of Samson and going by the assumed name of Giuseppe Di Leo, Savaldi took part in special operations during the war in Italy, France, and North Africa. Because of his Italian background and language skills, Savaldi was able to infiltrate enemy resources undercover and help remove, say, valuable scientists as well as disrupt black market activities. Savaldi also spoke Spanish, French, and a little bit of German, making him a highly valuable resource for the Allies. His work was highly classified, extremely dangerous, and because of its secrecy, not well known at the time. A book called Cloak and Dagger, published after the war, discussed some of his heroics. The book was later made into a movie starring Gary Cooper. After the war, Savoldi continued to wrestle, but was hindered by arthritis. He then became a teacher in Henderson, Kentucky. Jumping Joe Savaldi, an All-American on the football field and during the war, passed away at the age of 65 in 1974. Of course, scandals of a different type have surfaced in the National Football League since the signing of the married Joe Savaldi caused such a stir in 1930. 
But at the time, the thought of a married football player at Notre Dame was sensational and Joe Savaldi paid the price by missing out on the final weeks of his college career. The signing by the Bears caused further friction, but also helped the NFL tighten its regulations regarding the signing of eligible players. Thank you, as always, for joining us, and we look forward to sharing another great story in our next episode of When Football Was Football. We'll meet the man who scored the very first NFL touchdown in Cardinals history, but he is better known today as a member of the Basketball Hall of Fame. Don't miss this one. Come prop up on Thrive Fantasy this football season. Thrive Fantasy is a daily fantasy sports and esports app for player props. With Thrive, you can eliminate the countless hours of research and focus on only the top tier athletes that have the biggest impact on the game. Choose 10 out of the 20 available player props to build your lineup. Each prop is assigned a fantasy value for both the over and the under based on how likely it is to hit. Hit the most props and rack up the most points to win a share of the prize pool. Thrive has over $140,000 guaranteed in prizes for NFL Week 1 and has awarded over $4 million. Thrive's featured 100000 guaranteed contest is just $20 to enter and first place takes home $20,000. Use promo code SHN, that's SHN, when you sign up today and you will receive a 100% instant first deposit match up to $100. Download Thrive Fantasy on the App Store or Play Store or by visiting their website at www.thrivefantasy.com, www.thrivefantasy.com. Sign up and prop up today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. We at the Sports History Network are so glad to introduce to you a new addition to our lineup, the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast. It's a weekly podcast that focuses on the history and memorabilia of North American football since its inception in 1869. It's hosted by Bob Swick, the publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and Joe Squires, a longtime contributor to that magazine. The podcast was launched in 2017 and has over 150 episodes that you can listen to now on a Sports History Network, as well as your favorite podcast provider. So join Bob and Joe as they go through football history, talking about the memorabilia and the great legendary players and games of the American Gridiron on the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast.